Today, our scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 2. Would you stand out of reverence for the word of God? Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 21 is a, a unit which needs to be understood together. But there's so much good truth packed into these verses that we're going to cover it over a couple weeks. So today we're going to cover verses 11 through 16. That's Galatians 2, 11 through verse 16. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's word. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his faith, face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no flesh will be justified. All flesh is grass, and its glory like the flower of grass, but the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. As a boy, I grew up in a Christian and Reformed household. One of the things that my mother constantly had to remind us of as children was an expression that she liked to use, and perhaps you've heard it, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. If you're unfamiliar with these terms, it's helpful to break down their parts and etymology. Uh, Both of these words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, are a combination of two Greek words. Both of them share the first Greek word, ortho. Uh, The word ortho means right, straight, or correct. The term orthodoxy combines this Greek word ortho with another Greek word, which means glory or praise. In the history of Christianity, this has been used to talk about the correct and proper faith, the truth of the gospel is orthodoxy, and that's in contrast to heterodoxy, which is heresy. Orthopraxy is a combination of the same Greek word ortho, meaning right, straight, or correct, with another Greek word, meaning action or practice. The phrase, then, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, means that the right beliefs that we have, the faith which we hold, ought to be shown in lives which are in accordance with that faith that we profess. Our culture today has a colloquial way of saying this. They say, somebody or somebody doesn't 
practice what he preaches. Or he talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. That's getting at the same idea. In other words, people who don't do this are hypocrites. They profess one thing and they practice another. This distinction and connection between what a person professes and what a person practices gets to the heart of our passage in Galatians today. In this text, Paul is very much concerned about the question of whether or not we are living in accordance with what we profess, whether or not we practice what we preach. In the passage before us today, we'll see that our right profession of the gospel, orthodoxy, must lead to our right practice of that gospel in our lives, orthopraxy. In other words, what we know and profess to be true about Jesus Christ and his gospel, it must be reflected in our lives in accordance with and reflection of Jesus Christ. And what that fundamentally means is our lives must show that we are absolutely trusting and depending on Jesus Christ for our life and godliness. To come to that conclusion, we're going to look at this passage under two simple headings. First, gospel capitulation, or if you like, gospel compromise, verses 11 through 13. Then second, and finally, we're going to look at gospel confrontation, verses 14 through 16. So let's look at that first point, gospel capitulation. So far in chapter 2, Paul has recounted his second missionary, or not missionary journey, but his second journey to Jerusalem. Paul likely made this visit to bring relief to the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering under a famine from the Antioch church. They sent funds to relieve them. While he was there, he had a private meeting with James, Peter, and John, during which false brothers, he tells us, snuck in to spy out their freedom in Christ and to try to force Titus, who was a Greek, to be circumcised. And keep that language in mind, the force or pressured them to compel them. Yet Paul and company at this time, he says, we didn't yield for a second, not for a moment, but we upheld the truth of the gospel For you, speaking to the Galatians. Uh, Being in agreement with Paul, James, Peter, and John recognized God's grace working through Paul and his gospel, so they extended the right hand of fellowship that Paul and Barnabas should go to the Gentiles sharing the same gospel, and they should go to the Jews sharing that very same gospel. Directly following this account of agreement, Paul adds a narrative of disagreement. Thus Paul states in verse 11, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Remember again that Cephas is the Aramaic name of Peter. It means the same thing, Petra, Petros, rock. That is his name. So I'm going to use those names interchangeably throughout this. But he's talking about the apostle Peter. We don't know much about this visit of Peter to Antioch besides what is written here. Uh, But Paul has been giving a narrative of sequential events in his life and ministry. So we should understand this as directly following his visit to Jerusalem. And after they made that agreement in the gospel, Peter comes to check out the churches in Antioch. He explains why Peter was condemned in verse 12. 
saying, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. We should not view this situation as just a a one short event that this happened, that Peter was eating one time with them and that he departed from that. Rather, the language conveys here the idea that Peter has come and he's staying in Antioch for a time. And while he was doing this, probably ministering to the various house churches, remember they, they met in houses at that time, Jewish and Gentile houses, Peter would be going and ministering among them and he would be sharing meals with them. Uh, the language of eating with them likely refers to just regular fellowship meals, but often we read in the early church that when they gathered together for fellowship meals, they also had the Lord's Supper. So this is a significant thing which Paul is telling us here. So it was something that was ongoing, but something changed that. As Paul will describe what Peter was living like then later in verse 14, he says, you, a Jew, were living like a Gentile, and that's significant. But everything changed when certain men came from James. It's not entirely clear the relationship of these people to James, why they came, and what their connection really was with him. Uh, Some people take it to be that these people falsely claim to be sent by James, to be representatives of his view. But I think more likely, and the way Paul presents it, that these really were men that James sent to check out the Antioch situation. Remember, they just made the agreement of sending Paul and Barnabas to them, and that was involving relationships at that time between Jews and Gentiles. It's likely that James wanted to get word about how exactly they were relating in these churches. Uh, So these men came from him. These makes the most sense, considering that, but when these people came to the churches, what they saw was churches, Jews and Gentiles, having fellowship together, fellowship meals. They were living out the freedom which they had in the gospel, and this would have troubled these people, as Paul leads us to understand. This breaking of bread, as it were, understand, it is a breaking down of barriers, For over a thousand years, the barrier between Jews and Gentiles stood. Moreover, God is the one who set up that barrier. He called Abraham. He commanded him to be circumcised according to the covenant that he had with him. He sent Moses and he established his law. His law, which included circumcision. And in the law, God established also certain commands and practices to manifest and maintain the distinction that these are my people, and I am their God, and all others are not. It was a serious thing. One of the key ways that this distinction was manifested and maintained was through strict dietary laws. There were certain foods that they could not eat, such as shellfish and pork. Jews were commanded not to eat these. Keeping this diet would have been difficult, especially for Jews living in the diaspora, those who were living outside of Jerusalem. These Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem had not only to worry about what kind of stuff they ate, if they were allowed to eat it, but also where they would get it from. You didn't want to be eating and find out that, oh, this meat was actually sacrificed to idols in the temples of pagans. That was a common way 
The meat that was sacrificed would go to the meat market, and that's how you would get your food. So you could understand that there were a lot of practices and a lot of businesses set up to help accommodate Jews. So it's a serious thing. In order to protect against situations like this, there grew a lot of traditions and a lot of practices among the Jews, and eventually with many people seeing even the act of dining with Gentiles as being sinful in itself. The revelation that God had broken down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles in the person and work of Christ was and is radical. In the first century, to those Jews, it was shocking. And Peter knew this to be the case. So when those came from James, he stopped eating with the Gentiles, and he drew himself back, fearing the circumcision party. The ESV Uh, supplies the word party to give the idea of a a distinct group. Uh, The phrase actually just says those belonging to the circumcision. Uh, As such, it can be referring to uh, Jewish Christians, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, and the others who are with them. But it could also be referring to non-Christian Jews, as Paul has even been using it throughout. I think that's the best way to take it. At the time that this was being written and this interaction happened, the Christian movement was growing a ton. It was causing massive changes to the ways that Jews and Gentiles understood their relation to each other. It was resulting in what we see at Antioch, communion between Jews and Gentiles breaking bread together. As such, many Jews perceived Christianity as a major threat to their personal, and national identity. And this, in fact, led to a lot of violent persecution. Even Paul, a decade or so earlier, was putting people to death for this very thing, because it was threatening the Jewish identity. So at the time that this is written and this event happened, there was a very real threat to Christians, Christian Jews, that they would suffer by the hands of their brothers in Judaism, that they would suffer death even for this. Therefore, Peter, being afraid of what would happen if word got back to Jerusalem about his practices of eating and breaking bread with the Gentiles, if it got back to Jerusalem, who knows what would happen to him. And it might hurt, he would think, the gospel among the Jews. We have to remember that at the time that Peter is writing this letter, this was very much still a live issue. He's not just telling this to make Peter and even Barnabas look bad. He's telling it because this situation just happened. And likely, news of this event has already gotten out. And that the churches in Galatia have already heard stories about it. In fact, the false teachers who were at Galatia, probably knew about what happened here, and they were saying that Paul was preaching and practicing things which are contrary to Peter, James, and you know what? Even Barnabas, who helped plant your churches. Paul is not keeping in step with the gospel as they are presenting it. Uh, The region of Galatia was very close to Antioch, so word would have traveled fast. For this reason, Paul wants to set the record straight and explain just what happened. 
He wants the Galatians to know that far from Peter's actions being in accordance with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was in complete opposition to it. And withdrawing from table fellowship, Peter communicated a clear message to the Gentile Christians. You need something else besides faith in Jesus Christ. You need to be circumcised and become a Jew in practice. We can acknowledge that this this is a hard passage, that this is said of Peter. But it's also something that can comfort our faith that the Bible is honest about what really happened. And Paul will tell us when even somebody like Peter messes up. This is a sobering text, but it reminds us that no mere man, whether an apostle or a pope, is perfect without sin or failure. If Peter can capitulate in this way, how much more ought we to be on guard against compromising the gospel and accommodation to the world? And if we do, let us hope that we have a brother or sister like Paul there to confront us. Which brings us to our next point. We've just considered gospel capitulation. Now let's consider gospel confrontation. Paul, having just described the context and capitulation which took place, now he explains his confrontation with Peter and gives the content of what he said. Notice how Paul describes the behavior of Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jews in the beginning of verse 14. He says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is a metaphor. Paul uses the Greek word orthopodeo. This is a combination of two words, one of which we already talked about. Ortho, right, correct, or straight. And he connects this with another word. Children, if you need braces because your teeth are crooked, you go to what? You might not know the name. An orthodontist. And their job is to correct your teeth and make them straight and right. The word Paul uses here is orthopedeo. It means to walk straight or upright and correct. It's the verbal form from which we get our noun uh, talking about a orthopedics, which is a field of medicine, which its purpose is to make you have healthy feet so that you can walk straight and upright. And that's the word Paul is using here. Notice here that Paul gives a measure or standard by which we can tell if something is straight or correct. He gives a standard, and that standard is the truth of the gospel. Paul says that at this time, Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jews were not walking straight. They need help from orthopedics the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Paul is picking up on a prominent scripture metaphor for moral and ethical conduct, specifically and more generally for a way of life when he talks about walking. What does Psalm 1 say? Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, nor stands in the way of sinners, but his delight is what? In the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. In this psalm, Psalm 1, it's the law of God which is seen to be the measure and standard by which all conduct in life must be measured. Paul is doing something similar here. 
he is saying that it is the gospel which is now our standard and measure for our lives and conduct. This does not simply disregard the law and its teaching. Rather, we now understand the law and all of the Old Testament scriptures in light of their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who perfectly delighted in God's law, that we may be made like trees planted by streams of living water, and that we may bear good fruit in season. Later on in Galatians 5, in talking about our sanctification, Paul will use this walking metaphor again, where he tells us to walk in the Spirit, and he assures us that we are led by the Spirit. So there's just a little biblical theology for you through the lens of Psalm 1 and Galatians 2 on walking and what that means. But I labor over this point not only because I think it's important to see these biblical theological connections, which it is, nor just to help you understand your sanctification, your justification, and how Jesus works both for us and in us uh, to walk by the Spirit. But I labor over it also because it's really important to understand what's happening in our passage. Paul's confrontation of Peter and the book of Galatians as a whole, throughout redemptive history, leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there had been one standard of righteousness, one standard of justice and what qualified someone or something as just, and that was what? The law of the Lord, the Torah. This was the standard and measure for right conduct for the old covenant people of God. The law considered in all its aspects, moral commands, judicial rule, and ceremonial exercises. So, let's think about this for a second. If you were going to evaluate this situation in Antioch with Peter, in terms of Torah, in terms of the law, what would you say was right or wrong in this situation? Well, on the one hand, the false teachers and those men who came from James might think that Peter did absolutely the right thing. He's a Jew, and we have dietary standards, and we don't dine with Gentile sinners. He did the right thing. But Paul offers another evaluation. He basically says, you want to think in terms of Torah? Okay, let's do that, Peter. First, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. Living one way with some people and not following the law's dietary standard, and yet pretending to be a lawkeeper when your Jewish friends show up. And second, because of this behavior, according to the law that you want to uphold, you've just failed to live up to it. You just sinned against that law. That's the logic that I think he's really working out here. And he's going to do it even more fully in verses 17 through 21, which we'll cover next week. Paul is saying something even more important here, though. The Torah, in terms of it being the covenant document of the Old Testament people of God, with its moral, civil, and ceremonial laws and practices, is no longer the evaluative standard by which we judge a given situation. It is not the keeping of the law which now determines who is right with God. It is faith in Jesus Christ which justifies, and that alone. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the evaluative standard by which all things are to be measured. In arguing this way, 
Paul essentially confronts Peter and says, you're trying to live with one foot in the Old Covenant and one foot in the New Covenant. And that's not going to work, Peter. Thus he says to him, before everyone, Paul makes it clear that this was a public rebuke, he says to him, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You notice that language of force or compel. It reminds us of earlier in chapter 2 of those who are trying to force Titus to be circumcised. Here he's getting to the heart of Peter's hypocrisy. Understand that Peter was not trying to deny the gospel or the sufficiency of Christ. Peter was orthodox, and he preached an orthodox doctrine. But what was the issue? It wasn't his orthodoxy, it was his orthopraxy. It was the way he was living out his faith in this situation. His practice was not in step with the truth that he confessed. Yet, he likely saw his behavior as being in accommodation to the Jewish believers in Christ who were perhaps weak in faith. So he didn't want to make a stumbling block for them. Maybe this was his version of Paul's ministry principle of becoming all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. Paul even in that place says that to Jews I became a Jew. To the weak I became weak. But Paul's principle and Peter's practice here are not the same. In his ministry, Paul, for himself, willfully, as he puts it, surrendered his rights in order to advance the truth of the gospel message. In this situation, Peter, by his practice, is denying the truth of the gospel. He's telling them that they need something more because I'm not going to dine with you because you're still unclean. That's what it communicated. Paul then, because of this, accuses Peter of compelling or forcing the Gentiles to become Jews. If you can't have the essential fellowship of having fellowship meals and the breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper, you're communicating that they're distinct and that they're unclean and that Christ isn't sufficient for them. That's why he says that you're compelling them because Gentiles would have then felt what? That I guess I need to do this to be fully a Christian. So Paul uses this strong language. In verse 15, Paul uses that common language of demarcation, saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This was just a common way to refer to Gentiles as sinners. Even Jesus used that language. It was just a common way to classify them. In terms of the Old Covenant, this is perfectly true. By birth, Gentiles were classified by definition as sinners because they were outside the covenant people of God. They were without hope, without God in the world. For sure, Jews were sinners by birth, but the difference was they had hope and they had God in the world because they had God's promises. So Paul uses that language. Now Paul begins to explain that those promises, the promises which the Jews had, they do not come through the keeping of the law, but through Jesus Christ and belief in him. Thus he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed 
in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one or no flesh will be justified. It's important to note, again, that Paul is not critiquing Peter's theology. Paul isn't necessarily challenging it, but he's helping him to work out the implications of what he professes to be true in his life and ministry. He therefore includes Peter in saying, we know, we know, us Jews, that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by Jesus Christ, because they have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to see their utter wretchedness, and that they need him as a Savior. Christian Jews know that you're not saved by works, but by Jesus Christ and faith in him. Now, there is debate on how best to translate these two phrases, works of law and how to understand that, and also uh, faith in Christ. Uh, Works of law is Pauline's shorthand for the entire Mosaic law and a life lived in obedience to it. When he says we are not justified in this way, he is saying that works done in obedience to God's law does not secure right standing before God. Righteousness does not come through the law, and he's going to explain it was never meant to be the case, but it was misunderstood. Sometimes, though, we we misunderstand what Pharisees and other Jews believed at this time. You see, most of them actually believed that salvation is a free gift of God. But here's the distinction. It's a gift which he gives to the worthy, and the worthy are those who keep God's law. Paul doesn't preach that. Paul preaches an incongruous gift, something that God gives to the worthless to make them worthy. So Paul is saying that by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying that this is not the case, and that that's where the phrase that by faith in Christ comes in. This is the most common translation, faith in Christ. The phrase is more woodenly translated, the Christ faith. Uh, It depends on how you understand uh, the genitive here. Uh, So the most common translation, and from the Protestant Reformation, is that idea of faith in Christ. More popular today, some have translated it and think it's better to say, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, referring to his own faithfulness to God on our behalf, And there's a third view, which I think has a really good argument for it, that it's more like the Christ faith, the faith which has to do with Christ, the Christian faith, in other words. The great thing about this debate, it's all true. Not how you translate this, but through Paul's other letters and through the New Testament, we know that we are saved because Jesus Christ was faithful to God on our behalf. We also know that we are saved instrumentally by faith, and we know that that faith is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're all true. For what it's worth, I think the third option is the best, that it's talking about the Christian faith. But either way, he makes it very clear that we lay hold of Christ and his faithful work on our behalf in believing the gospel and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear that faith is the instrumental means of salvation, whereby we receive him and all of his benefits, where he says that, so we also, him and Peter, have believed in Christ Jesus, 
in order to be justified in Christ and not by works of the law. Then you notice he adds a little quote from Psalm 143. He says first, For by works of the law, no one, it's actually more literally, no flesh, will be justified. That line comes from Psalm 143. We have to remember that there's kind of a dull audience in our passage. Paul is recounting a recent event which happened in Antioch and his speech there with the audience there. But he's also using this message to that audience in order to speak to a second audience among the Galatian churches. News of this intense situation and encounter between the apostle to the Jews and the apostle to the Gentiles has gotten out. In front of the Antioch church, in front of Barnabas, and in front of the delegation from Jerusalem, Paul got into the face, and that's really how you can translate that phrase. I got in his face before them all because he was not walking in step with the gospel. He was being a hypocrite. Whereas Peter would have seen his action as contextualizing the gospel, and because of this, he, he um, oh, sorry, for his own public action, Paul has to confront him for it. It's not contextualizing the gospel, it's compromising the gospel. He said in chapter 1, and he's being faithful with this statement, that if an angel from heaven, or Paul himself, or anyone preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Anathema esto. And what's he say in this passage? Peter stood condemned because he was not being faithful to the gospel. At the point at which Paul is writing this, he may still be at odds with Peter and Barnabas. Yet we know that later in the Jerusalem council, they come to an agreement on how to relate to Jews and Gentiles and circumcision is not required. And also we know from their letters that Peter and Barnabas were reconciled to Paul, and they speak about each other as beloved. As Paul kept in step with the truth of the gospel in Antioch, even to the point of publicly confronting the apostle Peter for the sake of those Jewish and Gentile believers there, so too Paul is using this narrative to address the situation that's going on in Galatia. In our passage, Paul says that Peter withdrew and separated himself from table fellowship with Gentiles because he feared those of the circumcision. As we noted, there was violent persecution as a real option for those who were being faithful to Christ and breaking down those barriers. Likewise, in his final warning in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes about the false teachers, and he says this, listen to these words, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you, same word, to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In contrast to these false teachers, Paul is willing to be maligned. He's willing to be hated. He's willing to suffer even death to uphold the truth of the gospel for the Jews and the Gentiles, the truth of God's free grace, wherein he justifies the ungodly, That is what Paul takes as precious to him and which he'll give all of his life for. In writing this letter, though, Paul has a third audience as well. The church universal, even us this day, as God has determined that we would be preaching on this. 
If you have been raised in the church and have always belonged to the covenant community of God, and I hope that's the case, this promise of justification and a right standing before God is for you. Receive it by faith. If you are outside God's covenant family, outside his church, and you feel yourself without hope and without God in the world, I urge you, God urges you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive a right standing. To all of us who receive this message of salvation and profess this doctrine of gospel grace full and free, let us conduct our walk, our step with the gospel. At times, this means that we will be maligned. We will be hated. We might even be persecuted or put to death. Let us speak truth to our neighbors, whether they be Muslims, Orthodox Jews, Buddhists, agnostics, atheists alike. Let's urge them to stop trusting in their own works, but to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who bestows on the unworthy his righteousness. He gives worth, granting to you salvation which is full and free. In keeping step, keeping our conduct in step with the gospel of God's free grace, let us be careful that within our contextualizing of the gospel, we do not capitulate and compromise it, as Peter did here. You see, many professing believers today would have us, supposedly for the sake of the gospel, affirm the things that our culture finds, and affirming all sexual genders and identities, condoning sex outside of marriage, or racism and tribalism. We must reject all these forms of cultural idolatry and align ourselves with the gospel of God's free grace, which makes sinners into saints and which frees us from the thraldom of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let us never compromise this truth. Salvation comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to God, the justifier, and trusting in Christ and the work of his spirit, let us confidently say with Luther that goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that not by works of law, but by faith, we are made righteous. Lord, we who are utterly unworthy, that you make us worthy that you see us in your Son who loved us and gave himself for us. What glorious truth this is. Help us to keep our lives always in step by the measure of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to not compromise its truth. Please, Lord, help us in this church to be faithful to you and always cling to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.